As it began to draw toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Look, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large sum of money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is... Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your Holy Spirit as we now turn our attention to your word and to this most amazing event in history, Lord, as we just... Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would take away distractions. You would help us to have a sense of the moment and what we're doing when we turn to your word and when we hear from you about what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning and fill us with joy, the joy that you have promised all those who believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, you remember this is when Jesus is speaking to his disciples right before his betrayal and death. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus says this to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man will take from you. What an amazing thing for Jesus to say. Yes, you will be sorrowful, but I will see you again. Jesus predicted his death to his disciples and tells them explicitly that he will see them again. Now we know how true the first half of these words of Jesus were. You remember, Jesus says, you will weep and lament and have sorrow. And this is what we've seen so far, right? 
We've seen the sorrow. That very same night that Jesus said this, that the disciples were scattered, the disciples were confused, the disciples were in fear, and they were in doubt when Jesus was taken into the hands of sinful men. Confusion, horror, fear, and doubt. Imagine the disciples who had been around with Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah, loving him because he's so wonderful and all the wonderful things he did and said. And now they're seeing him before the Sanhedrin and they're slapping his face and they're blaspheming him and they're condemning him to death. We can't even imagine their horror. Peter wept bitterly that same night before the rooster crowed. Peter wept bitterly because he had denied the Lord. We saw Jesus before Pontius Pilate and all the disciples would have been following around behind the scenes watching as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and they would have felt helpless before this grand scene. What could the disciples do? Should they even do anything at all? Confused and helpless and full of doubt as the Romans nailed the nails into Jesus' hands and his feet. They were speechless before the cross. Notice that during the time of the crucifixion, we don't have any words of the apostles, do we? They're not saying things. They're not discussing it. They're not looking at each other and saying, what, what, what does this mean again? They're speechless. And as Jesus died, we can be sure that the disciples were heartsick as they experienced the pain of hope deferred, as the proverb says, that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Imagine being the disciple, confused, watching Jesus, whom you love, die. Because on top of all their confusion and doubt was sorrow at seeing the one that they loved suffer and die. Because remember, the disciples didn't merely just believe Jesus was the Messiah. They also loved Jesus, right? Jesus was someone that they loved and that, who loved them. And so on top of all the confusion and the theological confusion and doubt, there was sorrow in seeing the one that they love suffer and die. So how true these words of Jesus were. Truly I say unto you, you shall weep and lament. And the disciples wept and they lamented. You shall have sorrow. And the disciples had sorrow. And the world shall rejoice. And the world rejoiced when Jesus was on the cross. You can hear it in the words of the people and in the words of the scribes and the leaders as they're mocking Jesus. They're happy he's on that cross. They're happy he's not coming down. And when he's finally dead and put into the tomb, you can see the Pharisees are happy that that guy, who was such a bother to us and we hated so much because of the things that he said about us, he's gone and we're vindicated, right? We are vindicated because God had not approved of him. Otherwise, he would have been saved. The disciples sorrowed and the world rejoiced. But just as we have truly seen the first half of Jesus' saying come to pass, so also the second half of Christ's saying came to pass. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. What a beautiful promise. And this is what we see now in our section that we've read. Jesus does not say, 
You're going to add joy to your sorrow. There's going to be joy alongside your sorrow. You'll be sorrowful that I died, but there'll be some other reason to have joy alongside of that. You'll always remain sorrowful for me. You'll always remain in confusion and doubt, but you'll also have some other reason to have joy. He says your sorrow will be turned into joy. It will, the joy will displace your sorrow. It'll replace it. Just like Jesus says, a mother who's in pain when she's giving birth to a child, she has all this pain, she has all this sorrow, but the moment that the baby's born, it's, di- it's displaced with joy. The sorrow is gone, and the pain is gone. Why? What is the reason Jesus gave for this miraculous displacement? I will see you again. This is the reason for the sorrow and the confusion being replaced with joy. I will see you again. And what a joy that was for the disciples to see Jesus, whom they loved and whom they believed in, to see him again after his crucifixion. And Jesus doesn't just say you'll have joy. He says you'll have joy and no one will be able to take it away from you. It's not going to be a temporary joy. No one will take it away from you because no one can take it away from you. This is irrevocable, a permanent, irrevocable fixture in your life now, joy. It's based upon an irrevocable, permanent fact. I'm risen. Jesus, the one whom they love, will raise, and when he raises and they see him raised, all confusion, doubt, horror, and despair is reversed. In its place, instead of confusion, understanding, instead of horror, joy, instead of doubt, assurance, instead of despair, hope. Because he has risen from the dead. Because this is what the resurrection of Jesus does, dear friends. The resurrection of Jesus brings understanding and assurance and joy and hope and it replaces all these other things and it does it the same today as it has ever done and as it did on that very first resurrection morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's what the resurrection of Jesus does and that it still does today and that you can participate in the joy that the disciples had and in the hope that they had and that no one can take away your joy? Do you believe that? Because the fact of Christ's rising and the permanent fixture of Jesus Christ today is the same as it has ever been. And so for our lives to be filled, for your life and my life to be filled with these things, all we need to do is apprehend the same fact that they did in that first morning, the risen Lord. Amen? Makes sense? So we've seen the first half already in our reading of Matthew with the disciples. Let's now this morning observe the second half of this saying of joy and learn from them. Verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the sepulcher. So the Gospels make it very clear that this occurred early on Sunday morning. The first day of the week was Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, which was a Saturday. And so on Sunday morning, the women came to the tomb. This is why we've believed always that Jesus rose early on Sunday 
after the Sabbath. And for this reason, in the Bible, and not only does the Bible call Sunday, and the early Christians called Sunday the Lord's Day. How many of you have ever heard of that expression before? The Lord's Day. The Lord's Day meaning the day that belongs to the Lord. Obviously, all days belong to the Lord, but this is a holy day. We've talked a lot about in the past why holy days are important. And from the earliest days of Christianity, Christians met on Sundays, and you can see this in the scripture, in the book of Acts, the Christians met on the first day of the week. They met together to fellowship. They met together to worship together, to pray together, to learn together, to hear the word of God together, and to remember Christ and his resurrection and all that that means together. The Lord's Day. It was never considered a replacement of the Sabbath. Have you ever heard people say that Sunday is the new Sabbath for Christians? Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath. That whole idea that the Lord's Day replaced the Sabbath was not until the late 8th 8th century that that view ever came about. And we repudiate that today. But we do carry on the tradition today of meeting on Sundays. If you ever wonder why Christians meet on Sundays, it's not arbitrary, it's not random. It goes all the way back to the book of Acts. And we carry on the tradition today, not as a law, not because we have to meet on Sunday morning, but simply because it's a helpful practice. And I hope that you all will continue carrying on that tradition until you die, meeting on Sunday morning with the saints like they did in the very beginning, because it's important for us to gather and to remember the Lord Jesus. Jesus rose early on Sunday morning. That group of women came early on Sunday morning to the tomb. The other Gospels tell us they came with spices and different things to anoint the body of Jesus, to give him a proper burial. They never would have expected that this Sunday which never used to be considered the Lord's Day, and no people ever met on Sundays. Sunday was not like it was today. They never would have expected that this Sunday would have been an epoch-making Sunday. But behold, verse 2, as they're coming to the tomb, behold, a great earthquake. The enormity of what happened this morning could not go unnoticed by nature. 16th century exegete Cornelius Lapide said this, the earth which trembled with sorrow at the death of Christ leapt for joy at his resurrection. As we saw when Jesus was crucified, there was a great earthquake. And now as Jesus is risen, there is also a great earthquake. And not only a great earthquake, verse 2 tells us to behold, the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Not only was there an earthquake, but there was an angel that came down out of heaven. In fact, it was because the angel came down out of heaven that the earthquake occurred. Look at the phenomenal description of this angel in verse 3. His countenance was like lightning. Have you ever seen anybody like that before? Not when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror, right? His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. This seems to be a common description of heavenly beings. Does this ring any bells from other places in Scripture? The book of Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel, 
You have people who see heavenly beings and they look like this. Because, brothers and sisters, the Bible is telling us that beings like this actually exist. And a being like this actually came down out of heaven and actually rolled away the stone from the tomb of Jesus. And we are to believe in beings like this as Christians. Matthew begins and ends his gospel with angelic activity. Angels don't show up throughout the entire book of Matthew, but in the beginning and in the end. You remember in the beginning, the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to Joseph, right? And speaks to him about Jesus and about taking Mary to be his wife. So there's angelic activity in the beginning, and in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the angel shows up again and rolls away the stone. Angels represent the activity of God. And what we see here is that this whole incident, this whole story of Jesus, the coming of Jesus into the world, his incarnation, his birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Whose activity is that? It's God's. Jesus didn't decide to come, and God says, hey, where's Jesus? Anyone seen Jesus lately? He's down there dying for everyone's sins. Really? That a boy. It's the activity of God that Jesus came. The angels are involved because God is involved, giving orders, getting things done. God sent Christ to save us because God loves this world so much, Jesus said. He sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. See what good the Roman discipline and the Roman equipment did in the face of this angel. How did the guards respond to the angel in verse 4? For fear of him. The keepers did shake and became as dead men. Now you remember in 2 Kings chapter 19, there's the story of Sennacherib's army. And Sennacherib's army surrounds Jerusalem and threatens to destroy Jerusalem. And in one night, one angel descends out of heaven. And do you remember how many men, how many soldiers of this magnificent army were slain in that one night by that one angel? The scripture tells us that there was 185,000 soldiers that died by the hand of one angel. And what are these now Roman soldiers going to do when this angel shows up. The scripture says they were limp. They had no strength. They became like rag dolls on the ground. And we've seen this elsewhere in scripture. When an angel shows up, often people are so overwhelmed, they lose all their strength, and they can't resist. It's a sign that you cannot resist God. And banish the thought forever from your mind that a, a human being could ever oppose God We are proud because we don't know who we really are and who God really is. But when we know him, then we wouldn't be proud. J.C. Ryle says, Those hardy Roman soldiers, though not unused to dreadful sights, saw a sight which made them quail. In the Old English, that means wither into nothing. They were like ragdolls on the ground. What do you think it will be like in the future when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, and he said he will come back with all the holy angels. Okay, not just one. Myriads 
and myriads of these beings. Is any wonder that the scripture says the earth fled from his face and there was no place found for them? Verse 5. The angel answered and said to the women. Now if we compare the rest of the Gospels, it's likely that the women were not there when the earthquake took place and when the angel descended and rolled away the stone and the guards shook and fell down on the ground as rag dolls. But when the women arrived at the tomb, they found it to be empty. They probably thought, their first thought was probably, oh no, somebody killed the Roman soldiers. Perhaps they saw the Roman soldiers laying on the ground. Somebody stole the body. But as they draw close, they find the angel. And the angel says to them in verse 5, fear not. And interestingly, it says, you don't fear. As opposed to those Roman soldiers who were afraid, you don't fear. See, it doesn't matter if you're a delicate woman or a really tough soldier. The only thing that makes a difference when you stand in the presence of God or his angels, whether you're going to fear or not, is whether the Lord is on your side or not. That's all. And these women could stand where these soldiers couldn't because the angel said, don't fear. You don't fear. And here we have the great angelic announcement And look at these words with me. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. They came to the tomb looking for him. He was not there. For he is risen as he said. The great angelic announcement, the fact he is not here, the explanation, he is risen. And the reminder, just as he said, you remember he foretold this. Notice how Jesus is referred to by the angel. In verse 5, he says, You seek Jesus who was crucified, and forever will Jesus be known as the risen Lord who was crucified. You'll remember in the book of Revelation, when men see Christ, they see a lamb that was slain. They see Jesus who was crucified. And some people contest with Christians and they say, you guys are always talking about the death of Jesus. You guys are always talking about how Jesus died, how he was crucified. It's like you believe in a dead Jesus. Well, we believe in a living Jesus. Some people say that. And they pit the living Jesus against the dead Jesus. You're always talking about how he died. We want to talk about how he, we don't want to talk about how he died. We want to talk about how he lives. And they set those things against each other as if they were in opposition with one another. But here's the glorious truth. These things are not set against each other. Jesus is alive. And we don't believe in a dead Jesus at all. We don't believe in a dead Christ, but in the living Christ, yet always, and this must never be forgotten, always the living Christ who died. Because if we forget that he died, his life has no meaning. His, his living right now means nothing for us if we forget that he died. His death is the main attribute of the living Jesus. When we see Christ in heaven, we're not going to forget about his death and say, Hey, here's Jesus. He's alive. That's all there is to say. But here is Jesus, the one who died and the one who was crucified for us. 
Do you know Jesus like that? That Jesus died for you. That he gave himself for you because he loved you. And he redeemed you through his death. And that this Jesus is currently, at this moment, alive. It's not one or the other. We're not just thinking about history. And He died a long time ago and that's where Jesus is. He's in the history books. Dead. And we focus on that. No. But we see his death. Do you know him as the living Lord? Do you think of him not merely as just historical, even though that is, as I said, the main point, but do you know him as the Lord who is alive at this time? The one who loved you is here. And he's with us, even now. I am with you unto the end of the age. And as he said, the angel says, he is not here He is risen, as he said, because everything that Jesus said about his betrayal, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection came true. And everything Jesus said about the Pharisees and about what righteousness is, is true. And everything that Jesus says about what will be is going to come to pass. Have you listened? Because it will be true. It will turn out as he has said. Notice the angel in verse 6 invites the women to come and see the place where the Lord lay. And this is a very significant point. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. It's interesting that he doesn't just say, I'm an angel from heaven, and I told you that he's risen. Now get lost and believe, you know? He says, come and see the place where the Lord lay. And I'd like to just point out two things about this saying. First of all, this saying shows us the importance of evidence. Christianity is not a religion that bypasses your mind. It does not bypass your mind. Both the Old and New Testaments commands you to use your mind. It is not a non-evidential Religion. Could you imagine if the angel said, He is risen, he is not here, just as he said. And the women looked into the tomb and they saw Jesus' body laying there in the tomb. And they said, But he's right there. I, he's risen. Just believe me, I'm an angel. We don't believe despite the evidence. We don't believe in Jesus in spite of the evidence, in some kind of spiritual way, right? We're not believing that Jesus rose even though all the evidence shows that he doesn't. But we believe in him because of the evidence, because the word that God speaks to us actually is true. And it actually agrees with the evidence. He is not here. Take a look. He's not there. He actually and really rose. Francis Schaeffer said that God speaks to us true truth. It's funny that he had to say that. In his day, people thought, well, there's religious truth and there's scientific truth. And we believe religious truth, but scientific truth is different and they don't really go together. So he said, no, it's true truth. When he says that Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. We encourage everyone to look. We encourage everyone to examine and investigate. Unbelief is not because of investigation, but because of the lack of investigation. 
The greatest attested fact in history, it has been said many times by scholars, is that Jesus rose from the dead. A bold claim, is it not? The greatest attested fact in history. And we encourage people to read and explore and look for themselves into the tomb and see that he is not there and that what God has spoken is in fact true truth. The second thing we can take away from this saying of the angel is that the angel himself calls Jesus the Lord. Come see the place where the Lord lay. The angel identifies himself with the women and says that he is our Lord because Jesus, when he was obedient to the Father unto death, was exalted above all angels and principalities and all powers, and he has all authority in heaven and in earth. Of all the activity of God, the activity of God's grace in Jesus Christ is the greatest. And all the angels in their myriad hosts and functions, there's probably an angel for this, and there's an angel for the waters, and there's an angel for death, Satan. But of all the angels, Jesus is above all angels, and they even call him the Lord. And Jesus is exalted as the Lord of grace, which is why we can come to him and have confidence that he can save us to the uttermost and that all authority is in the crucified and risen Lord. Because of this, this is news worth sharing. And in verse 7, the angel tells them to go, not lackadaisically, but to go quickly, because there's no news more important than this. And you'll see in verse 8 that the women did go quickly. He tells them to go quickly and tell the disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. Christ had actually already told this to the disciples in Matthew 26, verse 32. He told them, after I have risen from the dead, I will see you in Galilee. Galilee is the place where the Lord chose to see the disciples, to meet them, and to ascend. Not to ascend, excuse me, ascended from the Mount of Olives, but to see them. Lo, I have told you, go and see, the angel says in verse 7. He goes before you into Galilee, there you shall see him. I have told you, I have fulfilled my mission. Now you go and see that this is true. I think this is a beautiful thing for us as well. God has told us many things. Go and see whether what he has said is true. Don't be passive about hearing the word of God. He tells us things. Think about it. Meditate on it. Investigate it. Test it. Go and see. In verse 8, they run quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. These two emotions can be together. Imagine being in their shoes on that morning, and they, they have come with no expectations except to bury Jesus with all the spices. They're weeping, they're sorrowful, they're in doubt and confusion. And all of a sudden, as Jesus said, their sorrow has been turned into, here we see in verse 8, great joy. Can you imagine what it would be like at that moment to be them? These two things can and do go together, especially when we're talking about the spiritual things of God. Fear and great joy. And as Christians, we too ought to have fear and great joy over the things that we believe. I think we fear because the things that we believe are so much greater and bigger than we are. 
so much greater and bigger than the things that we naturally see around us. God created the heavens and the earth. I think that's cause to fear. God is the judge of all the earth. That's cause to fear. God redeemed you by the blood of his son. That's cause to fear. But also, all these things are cause, causes for us to be full of joy as well when we see how true they are. And in verse 9, as they went to tell his disciples, another behold, Jesus suddenly appears to them. It's amazing that he gives the most common greeting in the Greek language, at least recorded in the New Testament Greek, chairete, common Greek greeting. What chairete means is happiness attends you. It's kind of like when people would meet each other in the Middle East and say shalom, which means peace, and you're wishing peace upon that person that you're greeting. But instead of shalom, Jesus is wishing them what? Joy. And he meets them on the road, and instead of saying shalom, which he does say to the disciples, because peace is also the result of the resurrection, he says, joy be to you. As he said to them, you will have sorrow and you will meet, but when you see me, you will have joy. Jesus takes this common greeting for joy and he gives it more meaning than it has ever had. It's infused with all life and the joy that Jesus Christ brings. And they fall down and they worship him. Who of us would not have done the same thing if we, if we saw Jesus on that day? And who of us will not do that when we see Jesus ourselves? Which all of us will see Jesus ourselves. Who of us will not fall down and worship the risen Lord who died for us? It was a spontaneous, inevitable response from seeing him. It was not liturgical. They didn't take their cues from a teleprompter. They knew exactly what to do when they saw him. So shall we all. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. You see, they probably were afraid of him at that moment, unsure of what Jesus would do. What was Jesus like now? Now that he's risen from the dead, is he the same Jesus? Is he still gentle? Is he still loving? Is he still accepting? Is he still kind? Is he the same Jesus that we know? Here he is in glory. Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. John Calvin writes, we conclude that it was improper fear from which Christ again delivers them. For though it arose out of admiration, still it was opposed to the tranquility of faith. That they may raise themselves to Christ, the conqueror of death, they are commanded to be cheerful. But by those words we are taught that we never know aright our Lord's resurrection until through the firm assurance which we have con conceived in our hearts, we venture to rejoice that we have been made partakers of the same life. Our faith ought, at least, to proceed so far that fear shall not predominate. Calvin says that they were afraid because they were not really grasping all that was going on. But a true view of the resurrected Christ brings joy. Jesus says the same thing to the women as the angel says to them with one difference. 
He calls the disciples his brothers. So the angel said, go tell the disciples that he will meet them in Galilee. And Jesus says, go tell not merely my disciples, but go tell my brothers, my brethren, that they, will, that they go to Galilee and there they shall see me. You know, it's one thing for a normal man to say about another person, my brother. If I were to say to Elliot, he's my brother. It's one thing for a normal man to say, my brothers. But imagine hearing from the risen, incorruptible Christ, my brothers. These are my brothers. And we're talking not just about a normal man, but the man who has risen from the dead incorruptibly. Because those who believe in Christ as Jesus earlier taught us in the gospel, are his brothers, but his brothers in the most remarkable sense. Because what we learn in Scripture is that when we believe in Christ and become a part of the family of God, we obtain the same relationship to the Father as Jesus himself has. In the gospel of John chapter 20, this same incident of Jesus meeting the women and saying, go tell my brothers, is recorded a little bit differently. And he says, I go to my God and your God, to my Father and to your Father. When Jesus says my brothers, he's not just talking like some punk would say, my, my homeboys, my bros. He's saying now, these are my brothers who are exalted to sonship like I am the Son. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, that Jesus died, it says, to bring many sons to glory. And that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Don't read this thinking he's just using a flippant term. But the risen, incorruptible Christ is calling those who believe in him brothers, equal sons of the Father. And the God and the Paul tells us in the epistle to the Romans that if we are the sons of God, then we are heirs of God, heirs of all things and joint heirs with Christ. This is a packed saying because Jesus rose, those who believe in him, he himself calls them brothers. I don't think we can fathom the depths of that word. Finally, let us look at the opposition, which we see in verse 11 to 15. The other side, you will sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. But the opposite is also true. The world will rejoice, but their joy will be turned into confusion and sorrow. Their joy will be turned into horror. And so we see in verse 11, the guards, after they rouse themselves from their ragdoll comas, they run to the chief priests. Now obviously these are Roman guards, but if they had gone back to their Roman authorities, they would have been put to death. The penalty for failing their job would have been death. And so they run to the chief priests This is their only hope. Perhaps the chief priests with their authority and position can preserve us and our lives. 
In verse 12, we read that when they were assembled, the elders, with the elders, the elders had taken counsel, and the elders gave them large sum of money unto the soldiers. The question is, what does money have to do with truth? Aren't these religious men? Aren't these men who care about God and who care about truth and who care about righteousness and who care about Moses and who care about teaching men the right ways of God? And now when the guards come to them and says, there was an angel, God's activity, came down out of heaven, rolled away the stone, Jesus isn't there anymore, there was a great earthquake, it was a miracle. They give them money and they show their true colors that these self-righteous Pharisees did not love truth just as Jesus had said all along. Because if they loved truth, they would have listened to Jesus. And in the face of the miracles of Christ, and in the face of the resurrection of Christ, it is amazing that we see the depths of man's depravity and what not loving the truth will do. What we need to learn here is that seeing a miracle or hearing about a miracle, or having undisputed evidence of a miracle does not necessarily guarantee someone will believe if they do not love the truth. God gives them over to believe a lie. The Greek tells us that they gave them not just a large sum of money, but sufficient money. So it must have been a large amount. Sufficient amount to keep these guards in their pockets. It was impossible for the guards to turn down. And what we see here is that these Roman guards were not thinking men. They were good at taking orders, but not thinking. The only thing the guards cared about was preserving their lives and not the truth. And so we have an illustration of Jesus' words. If a man does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These guards didn't hate their own lives, and so they could not be Jesus' disciple. And sadly, it's until this day that the report is spread and believed. In fact, even to this day, the 21st century, this report of the guards is still the one that unbelievers believe that the disciples stole the body while they slept. An absurdity of the highest degree. But what are you left with but absurdities if you refuse to believe in Jesus Christ? All arguments against Christ today are also absurdities. And that's what your alternative is to believing in Jesus. You're left with this kind of reasoning and this kind of Blind, foolish, wicked faith. So brothers and sisters, in closing this morning, I'd like to ask, why do we have reason for joy today because of the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus said two things. They would have sorrow and their sorrow would be turned into joy and their joy no one would take from them. We saw their sorrow in the Gospel of Matthew and we're seeing now their joy as these women have seen the risen Lord in the empty tomb and the angel and they're filled with wonder and joy and they're going and telling the disciples. But why can we too today have the same joy because of the resurrection of Jesus? And it's for the same reason 
Confusion is turned into understanding today. Why did Jesus die? The disciples were confused. Why was Jesus allowed to be taken and beaten, falsely condemned and put to death? They stood speechless before the cross because they didn't understand. But that same understanding that they received when Jesus rose from the dead, we can have today. We don't need to be confused about why Jesus died. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins and to save us from the wrath of God. Jesus died on the cross so that the unrighteous people, you and I, could be righteous in the eyes of God by no work of our own. Just think about how amazing that is. The unrighteous could be righteous in the sight of God by no work of their own. But because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was the atonement for the sins of the world, which the prophets and the law all pointed to, we can be saved because he died for our sins. And his resurrection shows this is the case. It shows that Jesus died for our sins and was accepted by the Father, and he himself put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And because he put away sin, the righteous one, dying for the unrighteous, putting away sin, it was not possible for death to keep him down. And he rose, giving us assurance and confidence that our sins have been forgiven. We can have joy because of the resurrection of Jesus today because our sins have been forgiven. Is that not something that all of us today can have joy in? And that no one can take away that joy, right? Say they shoot you in the head or something. It doesn't change the fact that your sins are forgiven because Jesus died for you. We can have joy because now that our sins are forgiven, we have eternal life. And we shall live, and we do indeed live, because Jesus lives. And we are his brethren. We are his brethren. When Jesus rose, the first thing he said was, go tell my brothers, and those were the ones who believe in him. And we can have joy that we are the brothers and the sisters of the risen Christ. This is no mere man that we are brought up to equal sonship status with. We are joint heirs together with Christ. And we have the same father and the same relationship with that father that Jesus himself has. And is that not a reason for us today to have joy, to be glad our sins are forgiven and we are in the family of God with the greatest hope of all? No one can take that away from you. If you are not joyful this morning, it's not because that joy isn't there and available for you. It's because you're not apprehending the fact. And lastly, um, although I think we could go on and on about why we can have joy through the resurrection of Jesus, but lastly this morning, we can have joy in the resurrection of Jesus because our Lord, whom we love, and the one who loved us and gave himself for us, is himself alive today. Don't you think we can have joy that Jesus is alive? Just for that very fact that Jesus is alive? The one who loves you more than anyone else in this whole world, more than your parents, more than your spouse, 
the one who loves you and who gave himself on the cross to save your soul forever is alive. And he came back from the dead. And how joyful it will be to see him, that you and I are going to actually see him one day. And we're going to worship him with joy because he is alive. And he's alive now. Even though we don't see him, we believe and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, Peter says, because of what we believe, that he is alive and we will be together with him forever. They had sorrow. It was turned into joy. Permanent, irrevocable fixture in their lives and that can be the same permanent, irrevocable fixture in our lives as well. Do you have a reason for joy this morning, brothers and sisters? True or false? Are you apprehending that reason? Are you walking in that joy? Are you waiting for something else to happen? Are you, are you waiting for something to change in your life before you can have joy? You can have joy now. What a message we have to share. What other message is worth going quickly and sharing that with others? Hope, purpose, peace, joy. It's all apprehended in this fact. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for lifting beggars up and making them sit with princes. And truly, there are no words for us to describe what you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for loving us while we were your enemies and deserving of death and nothing but death. And thank you for giving us hope. I just pray for everyone here that we would stop waiting for joy. And Lord, that we would remember together this glorious fact that displaces all sorrow and confusion that you have risen. Thank you that you are risen and here today. Lord, we worship you. Thank you so much for your great gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.